Hello. We are so glad that you could join us today. Our prayer is that as you listen to the word, you would take this time to draw nearer to God as an individual and as a family. God loves you so so much, and his desire is for you to get closer to him in this season through worship, through dwelling in his word and prayer. Good morning, and I'm so glad to be back to speak to you again. And uh, we've just finished a series on some of the matters of the heart. And uh, I hope you go back and listen to all those. Pastor Taz spoke last week about a heart of faith. And uh, I've been speaking about a heart of righteousness, a heart of repentance and forgiveness. And I, I just think that there's so much that God does with our heart. And uh, I want to kind of continue along that line, although I want to step into another uh, aspect of what I believe the gospel teaches us. And, and, and that's about walking in the light or stepping into the light. You know, anything that's in darkness has a hold over us. And if you're being held by something, the only way really to get out of the control of evil or out of the control of besetting sins or uh, habits is to, first of all, expose it to light. Light has a very, very powerful effect on you and I. Light purifies, light cleanses, light exposes. And, uh, you know, the Bible says this in, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it says, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Uh, Matthew 6, 23, you all know this, says, If your eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore that light or the light that is in you be darkness, how great is that darkness. Now, we see many warnings in the scriptures about keeping ourselves from darkness. Uh, we're saved and called to walk in the light. An indicator of us walking in the light is that we have fellowship with each other. And we also, by having that fellowship, we see there's an ongoing work of the blood of Jesus Christ taking place in our lives. We are in uh, that kind of an ongoing way being cleansed from all sin. You know, the, the whole idea of salvation and redemption is that it's not a one-time event. It's not like I get saved and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm totally saved. No, it's a, I did, I, the idea of, of it is what we're seeing here in the scriptures, that we walk in the light. We walk in a space where that continual washing of light, the continual washing of the word cleanses us, cleanses us as a process of all sin. We were cleansed, are being cleansed, and will be cleansed. And it's a very important concept that we begin to adapt and understand. Or what happens is we, uh, we get this event kind of mentality that, you know, okay, I can live how I want to because I'm saved. No, I'm being saved. I was saved. I am saved. I'm, I'm probably saved and born again in my spirit. But I have a work that needs to be done in my soul, my mind, my will, and my emotions, and in my body. So upon a closer examination we can see that there's not only a need for fellowship 
to help us to continue walking the light. But that without it, and without a constant renewal of the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ in our lives, we have this tendency to move towards darkness. In fact, uh, there's a word for that. It's called entropy. <laughs> and entropy happens all by itself. Uh, and, and the idea behind entropy is that anything that is left to itself goes to a lower state. That's, that's why the whole theory of we are evolving. Uh, really, we're not evolving. <laughs> In fact, if you look around, nothing evolves by itself. It, it, it's devolved. There has to be a creator that takes it from something that is less and makes it better. Uh, even if you just look at the streets in our own city, uh, they're not evolving. Left to themselves, they will totally deteriorate, and it seems like we're doing a good job of leaving them to themselves. Uh, anything that's left to itself begins to fall apart. It's hard, once you've obtained something, to maintain it. It's hard to take care of something once you've gained it. And, and it doesn't happen by itself. It, entropy happens all by itself. It'll deteriorate. Uh, if you put a brand new car out in the bush and just leave it, it's not going to get better. It's going to deteriorate the sun and the elements. You'll go back in a few years, there'll be a tree growing up through the middle of it. It'll, it'll be, uh, and it'll be, it'll be destroyed. In the same way, if you take all the parts that you need for a brand new Mercedes, and you leave it in the bush, it's not going to build itself into a Mercedes. Again, entropy will take place. So we have to understand the nature of how God created the world. You know, the other day, I, uh, during the, the shutdown, I was uh, bored, and so I, I built a garden, and it's a French garden, and uh, I just didn't realize how much work it would be to maintain the garden once I obtained it. So every day I'm fighting against entropy. If I leave the garden to itself, first of all, it'll dry up, or it'll be eaten by pests, and it'll be overtaken by weeds. So in order to maintain my garden daily, it needs water, it needs weeding, it needs care, it needs oversight. This could very easily be a picture of yours and my life as believers. Left to ourselves, or if we remain unchecked in our attitudes and our sins, we will also revert to something we never wanted to become. This morning I want to look at a story in the Gospel, the Gospel of Luke, and see if we can draw some principles that will help us to walk in the light. Luke chapter 6, verses 13 through 16 says, And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. And of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. Powerful passage of scripture, just think about that. I want to point out one of those disciples, one of those apostles, Judas Iscariot, who was also the traitor. Judas Iscariot had traveled both with Jesus and his disciples. Along with others, uh, he had also been used. 
according to Matthew 10 and verse 8, to heal the sick and to raise the dead and to cleanse the lepers and to cast out demons. He was numbered among the special 12 people that Jesus kept close to himself. Judas knew the excitement. He knew the joy and he knew the power of walking with Jesus. But Jesus had a serious character flaw. He had a a moral weakness. Scripture reveals that despite the fact that God was using him, Judas, in John 12, verse 6, it says, was a thief. And as he had control of the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. You know, I'm always amazed that Jesus would allow the thief to carry the money box. And, and, and don't you think that Jesus knew that it was Judas's character to steal? I, I don't know about you, but I, I've been in the ministry a long, long time. And uh, you basically, if you're around people very often or very long, you get to know their strengths and their weaknesses. You can kind of see that, you know, where they're fudging, where they don't always tell the truth or uh, where they have a weakness. Or, and you know, if you get to know anybody at, for any length of time at all, you, uh, you know. And, and don't you think that Jesus knew what was going on with his treasury? I've even had it with my own family that there have been times that I've known that there were things that were happening that were not being done righteously. Now, sometimes you don't confront the issue because you're leaving room for the Holy Spirit to deal with the heart of the person or expose the heart of the person to the person. In fact, the Bible says this. It says, whosoever shall fall upon the stone shall be broken, but on whomever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. <laughs> you know, sometimes you and I think that the Lord is going to challenge us on every issue and every sin in our lives. You know, that he's just right there checking everything. But did you know that there are times that the Lord's silence about our unrepented sin is actually a rebuke? Jesus, or Judas, Judas, Judas knew exactly what he was doing. He knew what he was doing wrong. But since Jesus didn't directly confront him, he minimized and he underestimated the severity of his iniquity. You see, through a rationalization, he may have excused himself, thinking that if stealing were truly bad, God would not use him to work miracles. I don't know if you've ever been deceived that way, but you know there are times I look back at my past and I'm uh, I'm deeply convicted. I wasn't living. I, look, I'm a pastor and I was living as righteously as I possibly could. But I, I go back and I think, eesh, I was doing that and God was doing this. God was doing powerful things through me and through my ministry, especially as a young man, and. Uh, but I was living in an unrighteous way. But eventually, God would deal with my heart. You know, God doesn't deal with everything immediately. But He is dealing with us, and He does want us to bring it to the light, and He does want us to expose it, and He doesn't want us to hide from Him. You know, I'm always amazed at the way we can justify our own weaknesses and sins in light of the good we think that we're doing or the way that God may be using us. But the Word of God says in Romans 11 and verse 29, 
For the gifts and the calling of God, or the gifts and callings of God, are without repentance. Now, that, that's a scary verse for me. What that simply means is that God gifts every one of us and He calls us, and He's going to use those gifts and callings because they're His gifts. See, a gift is what the giver gave, and a calling is what the caller called. And God puts those in us. And he's going to use those gifts and callings whether we honor those gifts or not or whether we respect them or not or respect ourselves enough or not. And those things are without repentance. So that means you can still be doing great things while at the same time violating the very principles of God. See, in many ways we can fail to understand how God will continue to work with us and he'll work through us. But at the same time we can be failing in our own characters. And we can find ourselves on this slippery slope. And this slippery slope is not a healthy place for you and I as believers. The Bible says how a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You see, a relatively minor sin left unattended can lead to a major sin that eventually can destroy our lives. The Bible says that Judas became a traitor. Now, he started out in ministry, loyal to Jesus. But then began lying about the finances until his deceitful exterior completely hid a very corrupt interior. Judas was a thief who became a traitor. Eventually his demise led him to take his own life. You see, Judas's unrepentant compromise went from bad to worse and eventually it destroyed him. James, the book of James, chapter 1, verse 15, it says, Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Death. See, there's a progression. There's an entropy. Once you allow a little bit of leaven, it leavens the lump. Once you allow a little bit of sin, once you hide it in your system, it does its work, and it brings forth an end that we don't want. See, it's in a similar way that unrepented and unresolved sin can change you and I from being committed disciples of Christ to those who disown His mission. You see, today as Christians, we look at the world and we can see injustice, we can see immorality, we see corruption. Sometimes the anger that we feel because of these things is not only understandable, but it seems justifiable. Why shouldn't we be angry at what we see? You know, there's so many things I see today that just frustrate me. They anger me. I, I, I can feel that, you know, there's such deception. You, we, we, I feel mocked sometimes. You know, we're told things in the press, and we know that it's propaganda. We're told things by so-called experts, and we know that they're not telling the truth. And they're being exposed all the time. You know, one day these vaccines are told to us that they're 100% safe, 95, 97, 96% safe. Now they're taking them off the market. In Europe, off the market. This one off the market. No, this one's not safe. We're not sure. Now we're told, no, this one only has about a 50% efficacy. Oh, but there's a chance, maybe, maybe this one might even cause infertility in, in, the, in the person who receives it. Ooh, this one. And I'm saying, whoa, 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 whoa. And you can get angry. You can get frustrated. And you can be justified in doing so. You know, 
here these same people that are pushing these drugs, these vaccines, take no responsibility. If one of these things goes wrong, there's no government that's responsible. There's no pharmaceutical company that's responsible. But we're supposed to trust these people. I'm telling you, there's a justified anger. Can you feel that frustration in me? Why shouldn't we be angry at what we see? Indeed, in many instances, we're actually watching hell manifest itself through people and through situations in this world. Now, I don't believe it's wrong to address these issues. I, don't be I believe it's wrong to debate the conditions and even engage in tackling the concerns that we're facing in the world. In fact, I believe we're told to do so. The Bible says in Ephesians 5.11, it says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Reprove them. So I think we're called to do that. But God, knowing that we would grieve over the evil in this world, the Bible gives us specific instruction. God's Word says this. Now listen, this is really important that you grasp this, because in Ephesians 4, verse 26, he says, Be angry and sin not. Be angry, yet do not sin. Part of what you and I must do is to discern at which point our anger festers into sin. You see, this verse continues and it goes on and it says this, do not let the sun go down on your wrath or on your anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So the context of this is, he says, be angry, but don't let it fester into sin. And he says the caveat or the, the expression here is, don't let the sun Go down on your wrath, on your anger. See, I think we can be legitimately angry about things that are truly wrong. But this caveat that I'm talking about is that by sundown, our indignation, our wrath, must find a more noble, redemptive attitude or expression. You see, we have to reach out and reach for forgiveness. We have to reach for things like intercessory prayer and for love. The Bible says that there's a love in 1 Peter 4, 8 that covers a multitude of sins. If we don't do this, the Apostle Paul warns that uh, we will, and he does this in Ephesians 4 and verse 27, I believe. He says, we will give the devil an opportunity. One version says, we'll give place to the devil. You know, if we don't catch ourselves, we can give place to the devil. And I was once told by a, a dear friend of mine, he's a marriage counselor, that if you go to bed angry with your spouse, have you ever had those times when you go to bed angry with your spouse and, you know, she's facing one way and you're facing the other and you fought and you haven't resolved it and you lay down and what are you doing when you do that? What, what happens? You're mulling over what she said, and she's probably mulling over what you said, and you're having a conversation. But who are you having a conversation with? My counselor said you'll end up having a conversation with the devil all night long about the feelings and the thoughts that you were not able, and, and, and the fact is you're not there to defend against that. My spouse may be thinking about all the things, and from her point of view, and being fed information that Build her case. Well, I'm building my case on the other side of the bed. But who's feeding us the information? Have we given place to the devil? You see, by the time you wake up in the morning, I think the counselor said this, he said, you'll be sure to have many judgments, 
many strongholds and many opinions against your spouse that were generated by your angry conversation with the devil. You see, you gave place to the devil. What happens? What happens when we do not allow the Holy Spirit to transform our frustrations? Well, I'll tell you what happens. What happens is there's this self-righteousness that begins to manifest in our souls. We become embittered, judgmental, cynical. You know, it's painful to watch people who take on offense, maybe from a family member or a friend or a business colleague. You watch them, they transform before your eyes. Their whole personality begins to change. They, they, they lose a certain sweetness they once had. and they, they, This bitterness begins to affect them and affect others around them. They become critical. You know, unforgiveness can lead to judgment. Once you can't forgive someone, you begin to judge them. You begin to have a filter on your life that points the finger. All you can see somehow with unforgiveness, you only see that fault. That fault becomes bigger than life. And it's judgment that destroys relationships. You see, God and only God is a just judge. We always lose when we put ourselves in the seat of judgment. The Bible warns us in uh, the Proverbs and, and in the Psalms, it says, don't sit in the seat of judgment. The Bible says, judge not, lest you be judged. We know a cynical person is one who is, the Bible, in fact, the definition of a cynic is uh, one who is a perpetual or a habitual doubter. A habitual, a habitual doubter. You know, a lot of people uh, tease me. My name is Thomas. Uh, officially, I go by Tom, Pastor Tom. But, uh, they, 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 you know, my official name is Thomas. And so I've always been, oh, you're doubting Thomas. Well, you know, I, I've had to change the definition of that because Thomas also means seeker of truth. So I want to be the seeker of truth, not the habitual doubter. You know, Thomas doubted once. But uh, I think he got over it. There are some people that uh, doubt all the time, and their name isn't Thomas. Maybe it's you today. How many Christians do you know who have become cynical? I've seen so many people who once had a living relationship with the Lord and with the Holy Spirit, and then they begin to doubt. Some of them even doubt the way of salvation. I even have some that even question whether they, were, whether they were ever really saved or not. It's amazing. The questions become more than the answers. And they question more and more. Once you get on that slippery slope, how this habitual doubting begins to steal away your faith. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3 says, Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. You know, the worst thing that happens when we become angry and stop praying is that 
like Judas, we betray Christ. <laughs> Somebody says, well, how, how, how do we betray Christ? Well, you know, in a very real sense, we betray Christ when we disown Christ's mission here on earth. Christ's mission on earth was one of intercession, redemption, forgiveness. It was our job to be reconcilers. And when we don't do that, we turn our back on sinners and on backsliders who are destined for hell. You see, Judas changed from an apostle into a person he never intended to become. He became a traitor. Our anger, left unattended, will do exactly the same to you and I. It causes us to degenerate into something we never planned on becoming. We become these Christian Pharisees. You see, by allowing this self-righteousness and a judgmental spirit to grow in the soil of our unrepentant anger, we become worse in God's eyes than the evil that offended us. We have an overabundance of angry Christians in the world today and in the church. They're not just in the world, they're in the church. And it amazes me how many people who once had a vital relationship with the Lord are now angry and bitter at someone or something. Some are mad at the church for reasons they alone know. Others at fellow Christians who either disappointed them or any number of things that could have happened that had them focus their attention on that person, on something besides Jesus Christ. See, once your focus is off of Christ, it's like we said a few weeks ago, you're not going to walk on the word. You're not going to walk on the water. You're going to begin to sink in the troubles of your life. What can we do? I believe that we have to turn our indignation into intercession. We must make our heartache work for us, aligning ourselves with Christ in praying prayers of redemption. Otherwise, we betray Christ's purposes with our anger. You know, some of the things that challenge me as a pastor is something I was taught in Bible school. It's what I'm doing, is the way I'm preaching, is the way I'm living my life, reflecting and showing forth the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. Are the things I'm saying to my wife, are the things I'm saying to my children, are the things I'm saying to my colleagues redemptive? Is my goal to redeem them? Is my goal to make them better? Is my goal to bring things to the light? Is my goal to strengthen? Or is it my goal to be right? Is it my goal to somehow, in a selfish manner, only think about how I'm feeling, what I'm thinking? You know, I know Christians, many who refuse to surrender their anger to God. And I see this in so many situations. How many marriages are in trouble today because one or both spouses are blaming the other for all the problems? You know, in, in marriage, you, cannot, you can't really ever change your spouse. You can only really work on yourself. And you can learn to listen to your spouse, and you can learn to develop better skills at communicating with your spouse. In fact, we have a rule 
and I'm trying to get this instituted in the church, is that if you'll ever make this decision, if you'll say, listen, I'm never going to turn away from my wife or my spouse. I'm never going to turn against my spouse. But we choose to always turn towards each other. What that simply means is that you're moving everything into the light. We're going to bring everything into the light. We're going to learn how to communicate. We're going to learn how to discuss. The four killers of marriage are being condescending, being critical, being defensive, and stonewalling. Condescending means that you always take the higher position. You look down and you have all the answers. And that leads the other person to often becoming defensive. Being critical leads them to defensiveness and often leads to a form of shutting off, stonewalling, the silent treatment. Those are killers. John Gottman, Dr. John Gottman calls those the apocalypse, the four horsemen of the apocalypse that will kill and destroy any marriage. So we have to learn to communicate around those four issues so that you and I can become better communicators. And we can undo those things and learn to turn towards each other and heal rather than try to change the other person. See, as long as you remain angry and blaming, <laughs> there's really little room for God to intervene and no need in your eyes for you to look at your own weaknesses or your own shortcomings. You see, there are those who also love their country. They possess high morals and they seek to walk in integrity, yet they feel perfectly justified in being embittered about certain situations. And here's the problem. Many of these people do so under the guise of it's the principle of the thing. I'm being principled. Well, I believe in being principled, but not to the point of being embittered. There are many things that go wrong in a government, in a country, I think that they need to be pointed out. I think they need to be worked on. I think that they need to be challenged. I think they need to be, uh, we need to impress even with legal action if we're going to change. It's very hard when you have, you know, group think and you have a, a one-party state that, you know, are using machinations and there is no debate. There's no public debate. That makes it hard. I have to agree. But the bottom line is that embitterment and becoming angry to the point of uh, not discussing is affecting you. See, many of these people, whether it's in a marriage or in a business or uh, in, 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 in our nation, are totally unaware or unalarmed by their unchristlike attitudes. Where in the Bible does God permit Christians to harbor hatred and an unforgiving attitude towards anybody? When was it that God gave permission to Jesus' followers to remain angry toward a person for weeks, for months, or even years? Thank God that Jesus didn't look down from the cross at the Pharisees and say, you need to be taught a lesson. I love you, but it's the principle. No, no. Listen to his words. In Luke 23, 34, he says, Father, forgive them. What's amazing is he didn't just stop there. He went on to cover their sins saying, for they do not know what they are doing. Whew. Here's the Son of God. He's our example. You see, the sense of 
Christian indignation that's infiltrating the church doesn't come from heaven. James clearly tells us in James 1 and verse 20 that the anger of man does not achieve the purposes of God. One version says the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. I had a personal encounter in my life roughly 25 years ago where I'd been totally violated by someone, a fellow church member, someone I loved and someone I trusted. And they betrayed me. They, they were like a Judas to me. And the pain was so great, I even contemplated using physical violence to retaliate against the person. You know how you go through a moment of madness. You just, I, I couldn't believe, I just thought, what? I'll never forget, I... One thing, I, one thing I do is I don't really often spring into action. So I, I did go and I, I hid myself away and I, I, I sought the Holy Spirit. I sought God. I sought to bring it to the light. I sought to bring it before the Lord. And I'll never forget how the Holy Spirit ministered to me. And he used this very scripture that I just read. And I heard, and I was, I, actually I was reading through my Bible and I opened to that passage and, he, and, and I read that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, does not achieve the purposes of God. And right there, that one word was such light to me because I was so angry that I stopped right there and I said, okay, God, I'm going to take this out of my hands and I'm going to put it in yours. Now, I had to do that almost every day for a year. Every day I found myself uh, praying and reading this verse over and over and over again until I could finally come to rest and I could really find total forgiveness in my heart and my life. Now I can tell you, I had every right to be angry and I had every right to retaliate. But today I'm so glad I chose to forgive and to walk in love. To walk the love walk. You know, you have to choose to walk the love walk. Love is a decision. It's a choice. Love is not. It doesn't come naturally. I'm sorry. You have to choose to do what's right. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is gentle. Love does not hold an offense against another. I mean, this is not easy to do. But I'm glad that I made that decision. I'm glad that I chose that day not to allow the sun to go down on my wrath. Why? Because I'm free. I have seen this person often since then. I have to tell you that I still long for them to have peace with God. And I long for them to be free in Christ. I'm free to speak to that person. I have no feeling of animosity towards them when I'm around them. I just know that I made the right choice. And I know that today I'm free. I held the anger for almost 24 hours. I didn't think that my mind could go where I allowed it to during those dark hours. I have to promise you that my mind went to places that I didn't think that a, a Christian mind could go to. I thought of even a, a crime of passion. But I'm so glad to say that the word of God prevailed in my life. And here I stand today. Now, don't dismiss anger as a little sin. Remember, anger was the very thing that disqualified Moses from entering the promised land. 
Moses is leading a rebellious group of people. Moses has these Hebrew, Israelite, Jewish people that he's trying to take from bondage and slavery into a, becoming a nation and becoming a powerful, powerful people. And I mean, these people have seen every type of sign and wonder. Water followed them in a river and, and, and God gave them the Ten Commandments. And all of a sudden we see Moses and he's, I can just, you can almost hear it in his voice. You can see it in the story. He's, he's frustrated. And we get to Numbers 20. It's towards the end of the journey. And in Numbers 20, verses 10 through 13, and it says, And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And there's a big rock. It's a cleft of rock. And, 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 and uh, many people think they found it again. And he said unto them, Hear now, you rebels. Oh, I could just hear his voice. He's angry. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. Now God had told him to smote it once. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, and said, Because you believed me not, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. This is the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, and he was sanctified in them. You see, striving, Meribah, that's what it means, striving, Meribah. Even though you get the blessing, even though the gift, the calling works, it prohibits you from having the promise. It breaks off the promise from your life. I've watched many people who get what they want, but they don't want what they get. I think it's time to deal with our indignation. I think it's time for us to deal with our lack of forgiveness. Think of what a terrible witness we are to the non-Christian world. Even though the unsaved don't know as much about the scriptures as you and I do, they all still possess a kind of a God-given sense of who Jesus Christ is. And when it comes to real issues of life, they sometimes don't get to read the Bible. They get to read you and me as their epistle. See, before they will join a church or before they will give their lives to Christ, they're going to watch you and I. They're going to watch Christians. They're going to watch how we deal with imperfect people. You see, we must not be critical and judgmental, but we must be representatives of Jesus who came to seek and to save the lost, to take people from the guttermost to the uttermost. You know, in November of last year, I began meditating on a scripture. In fact, it jumped off the page to me, and it was really God speaking to me. And uh, I became deeply convicted, and so much so that I believed that it was a word for the church, for all of us. And I shared it in the word of the year, but... More important, I want to share with you now. And I think if we'll do what this verse says, that we'll begin to walk in the light the way God wants us to. And our, our lights will so shine as to bring glory to God, bring glory to our Father who is in heaven. And people will see our good works. They'll see who we are. They'll see who Jesus is and who God is if we'll just do what the Scripture says. Acts 10 and verse 38 says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost. 
and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Now there's a lot in that verse, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost. You know, if you and I are going to do what we're supposed to do, we need to be anointed with the Holy Ghost. And you don't get anointed with the Holy Ghost by watching television or being on social media or just running around. You get anointed with the Holy Ghost by reading your Bible, by filling yourself up with His Word. The entrance of His Word gives life, gives light. It's the Word of God that is anointed. Jesus and the Word are one. If you want to, you know, people tell me they love Jesus. They tell me a lot. Oh, I love Jesus. I, I say, well, how much Bible do you read? How much time do you spend with the Word of God? Because Jesus is the Word that was made manifest. So being full of the Holy Ghost is important. This isn't Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost. Went about. Went about. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm challenging all of us to do just what Jesus did. He went out. He went and found people. Not in the temple, not in the synagogue, not in the church. No, he went about in the marketplace. Wherever he went, he ministered to people. And how did he do it? If you'll study the life of Jesus, he ministered in a certain fashion. He always ministered with a look. He looked at people. A touch and a word. Can I tell you something? People are hurting today. They've been bound up in fear. They've been masked up. They're anxious. They're isolated. They're filled with disinformation, misinformation, propaganda. And the facts that they have are things that they have no control over. If ever there was a people that needed a touch from heaven, it's now. If ever we need or needed to help people step into the light, it's now. If there's ever been a day when there's a scripture that defines our situation, we see that scripture in Isaiah 60. It says, and, and this 60 verses 1 through 3 hits the nail right on the head. And we're being commanded by the scripture to do something. It says, Arise, shine, for thy light has come. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth. And gross darkness the people. But, and I love the buts of the Bible, the Lord shall rise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee, and the Gentiles shall come to the light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Things bigger than our indignation about what's right and wrong are at stake. The world is watching how we relate to those who are morally wrong, even when we are biblically right. The world is watching to see if we look and sound like our Savior or like one of the Pharisees. More crucial than how you and I, how the, no, more crucial than how the world sees you and I is really how does Christ see us? How many of you know that he's watching? He's watching what is happening in our hearts. And he asks each of us a simple question. Do you know what you're becoming? Are you turning your indignation into intercession? 
Are you representing Christ or are you representing yourself? I think it's time for all of us to take a deep look at our hearts and our lives and to make a decision. Whether you're an unbeliever, you've never received Jesus, which could be the case this morning. You're listening to this message. Somehow you found this channel and you're, you're being convicted of your sin. You're realizing that you're in darkness. Whether, you're, whether you've never received Jesus, today you can receive him. You can stop right where you are and say, I'm in darkness, I'm in sin, and if Jesus were to come today, I'm not sure I would go to heaven. Well, you can be sure. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Bible says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and you confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, if you believe that with your whole heart, you'll be saved. So if you've never given your life to Jesus, or if you're a backslider, maybe you've Turned your back on God. Maybe you're like a Judas today. Maybe you've become embittered. You've become angry. you allowed secret sin in your life. You've allowed sin that you thought God didn't see. And God sees everything. But somehow you have seen that it's taken you on a spiral downwards. You're on that slippery slope. And, and, and today you've lost your zeal. You've lost your passion. You've lost your compassion for people. And you find yourself sitting in the seat of judgment or you find yourself embittered or you find yourself angry or fearful. Today you can turn the corner. You can also repent. Just pray this prayer. If either one of those fits you, just put your hand on your heart and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've allowed myself to be moved. I'm I'm far from God. I'm undone. And today I'm asking you, to meet me, to touch me, to come into my heart, to save me, to take me out of darkness and into light, to take me from bitterness and help me to repent and come to a place where I can once again bring all the things that hurt me into the light. I choose the path of forgiveness. I choose to stop trying to judge and change everybody. But will you help change me? Help sweeten me again. Help Wash me by the waters of your word. I repent today. I turn away from this. Help me today. I receive you, Jesus, as my Lord, as my Savior. And I'll turn to your word. I'll turn to fellowship and I'll turn to prayer. I'll change and be an intercessor. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you prayed that prayer. If you did, That could be the life-changing, watershed moment of your life. Whenever we go to God with real faith in our heart, He hears us. He hears us and He he meets us and He helps us. It's not the prayer that's important as much as... I mean, the prayer is important because it releases. We confess with our mouth, but it's what we really feel in our heart. God hears those things. He, He sees your heart. There's many of you maybe today that... By the way, if you, if you did pray that prayer, there's some numbers on the screen right now. On the end of that phone line is a counselor. That counselor is there to help you, help you find fellowship, give you some answers, give you some first steps. You know, it, like I said, salvation is a process. You are saved. Now, learning to walk with God <laughs> is a process. And we have great online courses. We can tell you how to get to a great church. 
and we will. And uh, we can even get you into a cell group in our own church. All over the country, we have places where you can meet and meet other Christians and build godly friendships. So we want to encourage you to do that. And that goes for all of us. Maybe today, God was speaking to your heart. And you say, oh man, I saw a little bit of that Judas in me. I think we all have a little bit of Judas. The Bible paints these pictures so clearly for us because it's so easy for us to go wayward. It's so easy for us to let that entropy come into our lives. Let's check the entropy. Let's, go, let, let's check that in, in, entropy. Let's go weed our gardens this week. Let's go take a deep look. If you need help, those numbers are there. Call somebody. If they can't help you, I'm sure they can get you to a pastor or somebody who can. Until next week, we love you. God bless you. Thank you for listening to today's message. We pray that you were blessed and that God will continue to transform your life in this season. If you have a testimony or need prayer and counseling, please send a WhatsApp or a call me to plus 263-784-303900 or plus 263-717-459999. We want to hear from you and we're here for you and are ready to listen to you, to pray for you and to celebrate with you. So thank you. We love you and stay safe.